The text for the sermon this day is taken from that epistle reading which you heard earlier. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. These words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for his adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That passage, how you read that passage, how you interpret it, has a lot to do with what your theology is. Because there is, because what is at the root of this question, of this verse, why are some people saved and not others? That is the big crux theologorum, they call it. The cross of the theologian. Called it that way because, on the one hand, every doctrine of the church stems from it, but also a burden because it is so complicated. So there is, on one hand, there are those who will tell you that in order to be saved, you must first accept Jesus into your heart. You must make that step. You've got to make that decision, they will argue. In fact, there's a hymn that you will hear sometimes, I have decided to follow Jesus. That's the name of it. You will not ever hear that here, hopefully. But that theology comes with the idea that we're not completely fallen. There's still a, just a sliver of goodness in us, just enough that we can at least accept God. But as you read in the scriptures, you realize, you ever, do you ever hear of a church where they call themselves seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly? Just so you know, that's, if you read the scriptures, there's no such thing as a seeker. So having a seeker-friendly church is like having a unicorn-friendly church. I know I might have ruined somebody who thinks unicorns are real. But they don't exist. There is no one who seeks after God, not one. If God left it up to us to, be, to save ourselves, to accept him, we would run the other way because we want, in our sinful nature, we want absolutely nothing to do with God. And where this sometimes can play itself out is there's a movie that came out a few years ago. You probably will know it from my description. But there's a movie where this individual, towards the end of the movie, came, was coming to faith. And he was on his way, and he was all proud of it, and he got hit by a car. And so he's lying there on the street. He's dying. And a pastor comes up to him and says, I think I am here for a reason. So that way, for this very moment. And he tells him that if you welcome Jesus, if you accept him, then you will be saved. Now granted, it's a, it's a script, so it's going to play out perfectly. Life does not, is not, well, it is scripted by God, 
but it does not go according to our plan. And so what if that person were to die before they got those words out? What if there was no pastor there or no one there to ask them to confess their faith? Does God say, well, tough luck? No. If we were to take the context of the movie, the man was actually already saved. You don't have to wait, you don't have to wait until you say some words because Scripture tells us that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If you could say Jesus is Lord, you are saved. Not because of what you've done, not because you said it, rather the fact you said it is evidence that you're saved. And by the way, whenever you add that word if, whenever you say if you do this, it puts, it on, it puts the burden of your salvation on you. I mean, what if you didn't really mean it? And by the way, this is actually what happens. They'll be wondering, well, I don't know if I really meant it. You know, some people are really indecisive, and there are people that have troubles deciding between paper and plastic. Deciding on who your God is, that is a huge decision. Maybe they didn't quite need it. Or then maybe you'll see that their life, they're sinning just a little bit too much. And if they're sinning too much in the wrong way, then they got to recommit their lives to Christ because they are what you call a backslider. Now that's one side, and by the way, if you ever listen, I've sat in these type of churches, and when they get to this text, they cannot preach it. They will dance around it like none other because it says that before the foundation, he chose us, he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He did the choosing, not the other way around. But then there's the other side of the, the coin. Now, if you want to know where these types, where this kind of confession is, here's a little hint. If you ever go to an area that has tulip festivals, this is them. And there's a reason they have tulip festivals. T means total depravity. U means unconditional election. L means limited atonement, I means irresistible grace, and P means perseverance of the saints. That's the five points of Calvinism. That's their theological standpoint. And so the whole idea that the problematic word, part that we Lutherans fall off of really quickly, is the limited atonement. And that is the idea that Jesus died only for some people that God, the reason why people are saved is because God chose them. That goes with this scripture. But so they think, okay, if God chooses people for salvation, then obviously he is choosing other people to be condemned. That's got to be how it's working. And so the question comes, well, how do I know I'm one of the, the elect? How do I know if I'm chosen? And so they'll say, well, what you need to do is look to the fruits of your faith. Look at your good works. And so the problem with this idea, there's a guy that he's now a Lutheran pastor, but he used to be in one of these churches. 
And there was a, the head elder of his congregation, just an absolutely upstanding guy. If anybody was saved based upon the fruits of their works, it was this guy. He did everything. He was wonderful in the community. But when he was 40 years old, he became an atheist. Which under their understanding, that means even though he had all the appearances, he was never saved. Which led this man to ask the question, how can I know that I am any different? And he began to despair. So how do we confront this passage? Well, there's a parable that Jesus told that works well to this. It's in Luke chapter 15. He was, he was having a dinner with some tax collectors and sinners, which was a big no-no in that time, because in that time, who you ate with was very, very important. And so Jesus began to tell a parable about a father who had two sons. Now, the younger son one day came up to him, and, and I'm going to give you kind of the layman's version, but he comes in, he says, Dad, I'd like the inheritance that is coming to me. Which, as you understand, the only way you get inheritance is somebody has to die. And so basically he is saying, Dad, you're not dying fast enough, so why don't you just give me that money? Now, if any of you, have parent, if, uh, any of you are parents, if your kids came up to you and asked for their inheritance right now, you would probably like, nope. If you're going to be like that, you're just going to be scratched off more to your siblings. But that's not what the father does. The father grants the son's wish. And he gives him his inheritance. And so the younger son goes off to reckless living. We don't know exactly what that means. We only can speculate. And we find out later his older brother was speculating. And so he squandered his living and eventually got to be extremely impoverished. Became desperate for food. Now, how many of you have ever worked with pigs? Have any of you ever looked at what the pigs were eating and thought, man, that looks really good? Nobody? Okay. This is how desperate this man gets. He sees that food. Now, granted, it wouldn't be the same thing as we feed now, but you still kind of get that idea that he's looking, that he is so desperate for food, he is willing to eat that. And so, you think he's sorry for what he did, but he's not. But he is sorry for himself. He's sorry for the situation he's in. And so he comes up with this scheme. He's going to go back and tell his father, Father, I am not worthy to be called your son. I have sinned against heaven and against you. Make me one of your hired servants. Which in that time would be a slap in the face. It'd be almost like saying to him, be going back and saying, Hey, Dad, I know I broke your heart. I know you have been wondering where I've been lying dead in a ditch somewhere. And so what I want to know is how much should I write the check out for to make it all better. That makes it all the worse. 
You cannot work off a broken heart. You cannot pay it off. That's what he thinks he can do. And so he's on his way, and before he even gets there, the father sees him. And the father, when he sees him, he be immediately begins to run. And you know, and this was considered significant, because you can see what I'm wearing. If I run, what do I have to do? Go like this. And so they wore robes in that time, especially those who were wealthy, like the father would have been. And so <clears throat> in that time, it was considered embarrassing for men to run. So for those of you men who like, don't like jogging, you would have loved that time period. And so that's what, but he would have, it looked like a woman running in a dress. And yet he didn't care. He was willing to humiliate himself in front of all of his servants to run and embrace the son. Why? Because he's afraid the son will change his mind and turn around. And when he gets there, when the son sees the love of the father, it's then that the son says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Period. He doesn't ask to be a servant. He just says, I'm not worthy. Which is what we call repentance. And what does the father do? He doesn't say, oh, you bet you aren't. No. He throws a huge party, a huge celebration, because his son is home. It's a reason to rejoice. But meanwhile, as they're having this party, they're having this celebration, there's the older son. And he's outside and he refuses to go in. He doesn't care how good the food may be. He does not want to go in there. And so the father goes out and says, why don't you come in? And the son says, not once have you ever done anything like this for me, and yet you do this for this son? And he refuses to go in. So in that parable, whenever you look at a parable, you ask the question, who does each person represent? Now, the Father is Jesus. Jesus humiliated himself. He humiliated himself by becoming obedient to death, even death by crucifixion. Crucifixion is a form of death that was designed to humiliate the victim. So Jesus literally humiliated himself for you. And like with the, the Son... That younger son, why did he have a party? Is it because he was a super awesome guy? No. Was it because he, he decided, like, you know what, I want you to be my father again? No. The father did everything. See, the father loved him even while he was a rotten sinner. He loved him so much that when he said, I want to leave, he let him. He loved, it just, if you have kids, you understand this. You love your child before they're even born. God loved you before you were created, before your parents were created, before the foundations of the world. He loved you and he planned and knew every single rotten thing you would say and do, and yet he still became obedient unto death, death by crucifixion. You did nothing. 
Your credit for your salvation is entirely God's. You do nothing. No works. No prayer of decision. He does everything. Now why are some people condemned? Because you have the older son. The father isn't like, I don't like you. No, he wants the older son to come into the celebration. Because you see, our God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He does not choose people for condemnation. He does, he does not desire the death of the wicked. So he entreats them with his word. But there are those who refuse. They reject the Holy Spirit. Why is the older son outside of the celebration? It's not because the father doesn't want him. It's because it is all his fault. He's stubborn. He refuses. Why are some people saved? Think the younger son. God does it all. Why are some people condemned? They refuse. They're stubborn. It's their own fault. So why does this matter? Well, for one, it influences a lot of things. It influences even how we do things like worship. You realize that worship itself is a gift from God. Because if no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, you most certainly can't worship him. So worship is a gift. But even more, it's about comfort. It's about the comfort of the assurance that you are saved. If you go with any of the other routes, salvation by works, salvation based on a decision, or God chooses one and chooses some for heaven or some for hell, you're forced to look at yourself for the evidence of your hope. But when God does it all, you never, ever have to look at yourself. You look to him. You wonder, you could just look at a passage like Ephesians 1 and read of all the grace and mercy is done. And I've said it before, go to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world of which you are part of that he gave his only son to be obedient to death by death by crucifixion that whoever believes in him would not perish eternally but have eternal life. You could sit there and read that passage and you read that passage which was written almost 2,000 years ago, and it's been written in countless Bibles, so it doesn't change other than the language. And you read that, and you read that as truth. You are saved. Or even simpler, three words. I am baptized. None of you baptized yourselves. It was done to you. That is the point when God went down and claimed you, clothed you in Christ, clothed you in righteousness as he had planned. Something that happened to you. Your hope lies entirely in his work. Never look to yourself because that's only where fear and doubt come. Look to his cross 
Look to what he has done. Look to his word. Look to his sacraments. Taste and touch and smell the wine and the bread and the Lord's Supper. And know you are his child, his heir. You are chosen. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Amen.